Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOTN. This week, we're going over the big UFC 285 card headlined by two title fights in the co main event. We got Valentina Shevchenko looking to defend her flyweight strap once again against Alexa Grasso. And in the main event, finally, the return of the GOAT, John Jones steps up to heavyweight to try to capture the vacant heavyweight title from Cyril Gunn. Very fun pay-per-view card that we got coming up, not to mention the UFC debut of highly touted prospect Bo Nickel, not to mention Jalen Turner taking a steep step up in competition against Mataj Gamrot, Jeff Neal against Shavkat Rachmanov, a ton of great fights sprinkled out through this entire card. I cannot wait for this card to go down. Before we get into it, though, I just want to quickly go over the last event where the lock of the night prediction of uh, Narula Aliyev comes through that pushes the 2023 lock of the night prediction record to 17-2 and now, so I'm hoping to continue to ride that on into this weekend. Dog of the night comes through, which was initially Eileen Perez. Obviously, that fight gets pulled, so I swapped it out for the Tatiana Suarez under 2.5. I include totals in my under or my dog of the night play or prediction and plays as well so that's why it was roughly around plus 125 that comes through and pushes the dog of the night record to 10 and 9 if you guys want to get a look at all of the predictions and not to mention just the ufc or bellator but pfl challenger series cage warriors which has their first event of 2023 this weekend and not to mention lfa fury fc cffc and obviously cage warriors all of that is covered on the patreon link in the description below five bucks a month a ton of great content for ufc and bellator and then there's another tier for the regional mma shows i go through every single matchup with the fine tooth comb so you guys don't have to do the research or any of the analysis aspect of that i got you guys covered check out the link in the description below you won't be disappointed i promise all right let's not waste any more time we got a lot of great fights to get through so without further ado let's get right into the card Kicking things off in the UFC's lightweight division, we got Esteban Ribovics making his UFC debut, going up against another debutante in Loik Radzibov. Starting off on the Ribovics side, he earned his contract on the Contender Series this past season, where he was able to secure an emphatic knockout within 90 seconds over his opponent, Thomas Paul. Ribovics is a very flashy str- striker who doesn't mind getting things into the grappling realm but definitely prefers to have most of his success come from his striking style he's knocked out the majority of his opponents and six of them have actually come within the first round he hails from argentina but has spent a decent amount of time over there at kill kill fc in florida but it seems like he's been spending most of his time in argentina for this particular training camp his takedown defense could use a little bit of work still, but he does a good job of working back to his feet. It seems like his path to getting back to his feet, or at least pulling off a reversal when he is taken down, seems to come from the Kimura sweep, or at least the Kimura setup, so that he can get back to his feet. It's a decent technique that will usually work on the regional scene, but he's definitely going to see that there is a huge step up in competition once he makes it to the UFC, which he obviously has and will be showcasing this week. His level of competition was something that he was at the mercy of in the regional scene in Latin America, but I hope the UFC, even after this matchup, gives him a slow and steady buildup because he seems to have a lot of raw skills that could still use some uh, sharpening, and I do think that he could become a a fan favorite in terms of being a, a fun, entertaining fighter, but as of right now, I still think he's kind of raw in terms of his ability to be effective against higher level of competition. Speaking of higher level of competition, that's exactly what he's getting with 16-4-1 Loik Radzibov this weekend. Loik is mainly known for his PFL campaign as in 2019 and 2021, he made it to the finale of both seasons for the lightweight division, but came up short in the finale uh, against tough opponents. Natan Schultz and Hausch Manfield were the two guys that were able to defeat him in those spots, but Radzibov is definitely worthy of being in the UFC. 
It's been a roller coaster for Radzibov as he was originally scheduled to be a part of the new season of The Ultimate Fighter, but when McGregor arrived to start filming, apparently he made demands in which included making space for some of his fighters that he brought along with him. Unfortunately for Radzibov, he was one of the casualties in the guys that were cut from the show, but luckily for him, God had different plans as he made it to the UFC anyway, although it came on short notice here for his UFC debut this weekend at UFC 285. He's already more than worthy of being in the UFC, so I don't mind seeing him uh, get this step up and this call up. And luckily for him, he has a very favorable matchup ahead of him here in his uh, opponent, Esteban Rebovics. In terms of what Loic is good at, he's a grapple-heavy fighter. He likes to throw big power shots to crash the pocket, close the distance, and then eventually drag fights to the ground where he does a great job of doing damage from on top. And although opponents have been able to work back to their feet, he does a very good job of getting them back to the ground where he's able to dish out the most amount of damage and success that he usually gets and has been able to achieve 16 professional victories with. He's going to be the second fighter to compete in the UFC's octagon hailing from Tajikistan. If you guys remember, Narulo Aliyev successfully made his debut last weekend when he was able to defeat Hafiel Alves. Hopefully Tajikistan can go 2-0 this weekend if Loic Radzibov is able to get his hand raised. I'm very excited that we're getting the UFC debut of, of Loic Radzabanov. Sorry, absolutely butchering his name. But, uh, you know, I'm glad that he didn't have to go through the whole Ultimate Fighter experience because he is a UFC-level talent. And I think that will showcase in this matchup where he pulls off the victory over the undefeated Rebovics. Rebovics, like I said, has been going up against sketchy competition. And I do think that his takedown defense is going to be too big of a flaw here that Radzabanov is going to be take, able to take advantage of it will get sticky a couple times especially when Radzibanov is looking to close the distance and get his hands on Rebovics but I think eventually he'll be able to get a hold of him drag him to the ground and then from there I don't think that Kimura sweep path to his feet is going to work for Rebovics at this level it might work a couple times but I think more often than not uh, we'll see Radzibanov or Radzibov, sorry, Radzibanov, why am I butchering his name? Radzibov will see him drag this fight to the ground over and over again en route to a decision victory. Next up in the men's bantamweight division, we got Damon Blackshear coming in with a 12-4-1 record going up against Farid Basharat coming in with a 9-0 record. Starting on the Damon Blackshear side, he made his UFC debut against Yusuf Zalal, and I believe that fight came on short notice, but that fight ended up going to a draw. He had a very solid first two rounds in that matchup where he was able to have grappling success and dished out decent damage against uh, Yusuf Zalal, and all three judges actually gave Blackshear the first two rounds in that matchup, but... Zalal was able to hurt him late in that fight and two judges actually ended up giving Zalal a 10-8 in that round which ultimately resulted in the draw. Blackshear is a veteran of the regional MMA game. You will see so many notable names on his record uh, if you look at his uh, at his fights from guys like Matteo Vogel to guys like Danny Sabatello to even guys like I'm actually pulling it up right now just to ensure that I got it right and not getting my names mixed up here. Uh, Andre Sukumtat is on his record as well. Pat Sabatini, Chris Moutinho, Alan Cruz, uh, and even Tony Gravely in his regional, uh, or sorry, in his amateur career. Actually, I, I do have to quickly correct myself. Andre Sukumtat was, uh, he was scheduled to fight Andre Sukumtat, but that fight actually fell through. That was supposed to take place in CES, but due to the coronavirus, uh, that event was canceled. But uh, a ton of recognizable names on Damon Blackshear's record, and that just showcases the amount of experience he has through 17 professional MMA fights. He's been fighting the best that the regional scene has had to offer, and although he's come up short against some of them, he has shown very good things in a lot of those fights that makes me believe that he could be successful at the UFC level. He is a very good scrambler when he is putting himself into scrambling situations. He's an explosive striker with big power in his hands, although it looks like he prefers dragging fights to the ground where he's able to showcase a, a very good jiu-jitsu game and a dominant top uh, game as well when he's able to get on top of his uh, opponents. 
I'm going to cut him some slack for running out of gas against Zalal, as he did come in on short notice for that matchup. But I do think that he can carve out a, a decent spot for himself on the UFC roster, given all the experience that he already has. On the flip side for Fareed Basharat, he's hoping to follow in the footsteps of his brother Javid and have a successful UFC career thus far. Fareed earned his UFC contract on the contender series this past season where he was able to defeat his opponent Alan Bogoso over 15 minutes with a clean striking performance and he mixed in some grappling there as well but for the most part was able to beat Alan Bogoso to the punch, utilize his range, utilize his long combinations and was able to stay safe in that matchup. Much like his brother Javid, Farid is a tactician inside the cage in terms of managing his distance well, using his jab to keep his opponent at bay, and then when he feels the need to, he can close that distance and drag fights to the ground. He's a little bit more keen on dragging fights to the ground compared to his brother Javid, but he showcases a very good jujitsu game where he can transition from position to position very well, but also even if he finds himself in a bad position on his back, he's very good with uh, reversal attempts and getting back to his feet. His wrestling entries are very uh, well set up given how good that he strikes, allowing opponents to or making opponents believe that he's going to be striking with them and then he's able to change levels without them suspecting it and he's able to drag them to the ground from there. I like the potential from Bashrat and I think that he has a bright future in the UFC if he can continue to progress at the rate that he is. He has a tough matchup ahead of him this weekend, but Fareed Basharat is definitely a kid that you should keep an eye on moving forward. I think the line is a little bit wide here. You know, Damon is a very seasoned veteran of the regional game, like I said, and I think that experience is going to come in play here, especially as Fareed takes a steep step up in competition. This is not like anything that he's been fighting in the past, and although I still believe he's the better technical fighter here, especially in the striking realm, which would keep him safe, if this fight gets mixed up in the scrambling realm or the, the grappling realm, I think that this fight will play out a lot closer than minus 500 or minus 450 indicates for Fareed Basharat. I still think Bashrat wins. I think he jabs his way to a decision victory here, but I would not write off Damon Blackshear as quickly as the odds are indicating. Moving to the women's strawweight division, we got Jessica Penne coming in with a 14-6 record. She's taking on Baby Shark, Tabitha Ricci, who comes in with a 7-1 record. Starting on the Jessica Penne side, she obviously had a very long layoff uh, leading up to her return to the cage in April 2021, and that was caused due to a failed drug test from USADA, and she had a lot of back and forth with USADA and ultimately was able to cut her suspension shorter, but she managed to eventually come back in 2021, where she was able to rattle off two straight victories. An upset victory over Lupita Godinez in a, in a very close split decision win. And then she was able to pull off an armbar victory over Karolina Kavakovic at UFC 265 in August of 2021. And luckily for her, Karolina willingly dragged that fight to the ground, which is the only place that Penne had an advantage in that fight. And she took full advantage of it by latching onto that armbar and picking up a win. In her last appearance in the cage back in July of 2022, she went up against Emily Ducati and got absolutely chewed up in the striking realm as she went on to lose a decision in that matchup. Jessica Penne turned 40 just recently at the ending of January, and I honestly think that this is pretty much the, the, the end of her career. I'd be surprised if she has more than two or three more fights on in her after this, especially if she ends up taking L after L, which I believe is on the docket for her over her next couple matchups. At her best, she's able to drag fights to the ground and utilize her superior jiu-jitsu against most of her opponents, and she leaves a lot to be desired in the striking realm as she doesn't really throw with a lot of pop. She doesn't usually use her range or her distance management that well, which allows her opponents to get in on, on you know, getting in on good striking uh, opportunities and even getting in on good takedown opportunities where they're able to grind her out from on top. We saw the much smaller Emily Ducati torch her leg from the outside, but also had success closing that distance and getting off some big shots when she was able to get inside the pocket where Penne really is not that dangerous. On the flip side for Tabitha Ricci, after falling short in her short notice debut against Manon Firo, and, you know, let's cut her some weight class, she, or let's cut her some slack given that she went up a weight class for that matchup, she's looked pretty good. She outworked and outgrappled Maria Oliveira as well as Poliana Vienna to put together a two-fight winning streak. 
She landed five takedowns in both of those fights and got a wealth of control time in each of those matchups en route to a decision victory. Richie is a high-level BJJ black belt, and you can see how well she's able to defend from submissions when opponents try to attack off of their back, just as Poliana Vienna was looking to do. But Richie was able to garner over nine minutes of control time in that matchup en route to a decision victory. Her striking is still coming along, but she's shown some good improvements. She throws in combinations, and she you know, could use her jab a little bit better, but I like that she throws in combinations, as that's usually a good start for somebody looking to hone the striking aspect of their game. But let's not make any mistakes about it. Ricci is best when she's able to drag her opponents to the ground and control them from that top position. She's in no rush to try to look for a finish, which allows her to maximize her control time while dishing out minimal damage, which allows referees to let the fight continue on without usually standing her back up to her feet. Her cardio looks good as well, which is very key for her to implement a grinding style that she does, especially when most of her fights end up going to a decision at this level. I think this is a great stylistic matchup for Tabitha Ricci. She does a great job in terms of implementing her wrestling. And then from that top position, she's shown in her last couple of fights that she does a good job of staying out of her, uh, the submissions of her uh, opponents who try to throw up uh, anything threatening off of their back. Poliana Vienna, she's very aggressive with her jiu-jitsu game. And we saw Tabitha Ricci completely shut that down, especially with the nine and a half minutes of control time uh, Tabitha was able to secure. I think Penne is more than likely going to be fighting off of her back for the majority of this matchup and I just don't think it's going to come to fruition I think she'll be planted on her back for the majority of this fight with Tabitha grinding this out to a decision victory Next up in the men's bantamweight division, we got 10-3 Mana Martinez going up against 7-0 Cameron Simon Starting off on the Mana Martinez side, he's looking to follow up on a solid split decision victory over Brandon Davis from back in October and get to put together his first ever UFC winning streak. He's a solid striker with big knockout power in his hands, but he's very much evolved and developed from the guy that we knew from the regional scene. In nine of his 10 fights that happened before making it to the UFC, those fights finished inside the distance. He was either the guy going out there and getting the kill or the guy ending up getting killed and going out on his shield. But his striking and his patience has very much grown over the last couple of years, which has allowed him to pick up a couple of wins at the UFC level, all by decision as well. He was one of the guys that was training over there at Glory MMA before his last fight and looked to be staying there even after picking up his win against Brandon Davis. But we all know what went down with James Krause, and unfortunately he had to shift back his training camp to Houston where he was originally from. It seems like he's teamed up with crew Bob Perez, who is known mainly for training with fighters like Derek Lewis, Lorne Murphy, and most recently, Rafael Alves. And I'm looking forward to seeing if there's any new wrinkles that crew Bob Perez can put into Mundo Martinez's game. But Martinez is already a strong striker, so I don't think he really needs too much help in that aspect of his game. I'm curious to see how he looks to Im uh, improve his grappling game, as that will likely allow him to take that next step up in the UFC. He needs to be a more well-rounded fighter. He has a, a decent grappling game as of right now, but it's not at that level that's going to see him be successful and reach the top 15 of the stacked featherweight division. Or, sorry, this bantamweight division. But he's a, he's a solid striker, good power in his hands, always dangerous, but there is a clear ceiling that I think is very noticeable when you see him going to split decisions against guys like Guido Canetti and Brandon Davis. On the flip side, when you want to talk about potential... And talking about Cameron Simon, who initially earned his UFC contract through the contender series with a very solid third round finish or Josh Wang Kim as a plus 200 underdog. He made a successful UFC debut against Stephen Kozlo back in December, where it looked like it, he was down going into that third round, especially with the point that he got taken away from him. Uh, it looked like Kozlo was taking advantage of the takedown defense flaw that's in Simon's game, but... Simon showcased in uh, numerous times in that fight that he's able to reverse, stay disciplined, and get out of bad positions when he needs to. He's a very scrappy fighter, especially on the feet, but in the grappling realm, he does a very good job of not accepting a bad position. He's always looking to either throw up a submission or look for a reversal opportunity, which allows him to get back on top of his opponent or work his way back to his feet where he seems to be most comfortable. 
He's somewhat of a flashy striker, but he's very effective with his output when he throws it. He has good speed and closes the distance very well, and he throws a variety of different strikes, which usually keeps his opponents thinking. His main training partner is another fighter that fights later on in this card, Indrikas Duplessis, and it seems like they have a very good thing going for them down there in South Africa, and it looks like that they're going to put themselves on the map on the map if they're able to pick up back-to-back victories this weekend. I love the potential from Simon and I'd like to see him improve his takedown defense a bit, but if his reversals and his ability to scramble continues to hold up, I have no doubt that even with poor takedown defense, he could reach a high level considering his ability to get out of bad positions whenever he's put in them. Although he's still only 22 years old, I think a lot of Cameron Simon and I think that this is his fight to lose. He is absolutely going to go out there and have his way, in my opinion, with Mana Martinez. Obviously, Cameron has to be wary of the big power that's coming his way from Mana, but I think with the footwork, the speed, the flashy striking, as well as the grappling game of Cameron, he should be able to nullify most of the threat from the Martinez side, and I think he'll be able to win this fight. Likely by decision, maybe he gets a late finish in this fight, but I think that he does a lot of great things that will keep him out of trouble and then eventually counter and take advantage of some of the slip-ups in Martinez's game. Obviously, the camp change for Martinez is not the greatest look for him at this point in time, but I don't think it's going to be the main reason as to why he loses this fight. I just think that Cameron is much more skilled than him. So look for Cameron to get his hand raised here, either by late finish or by decision. Next up in the welterweight division, we got Ian Machado Gary coming in with a 10-0 record. He's going up against Kanan Song, who comes in with a 19-6 record. Starting off on the Gary side, and this is a guy that I've kind of been beating the drum that, you know, there's going to come a time where we can fade him and make some decent money off of fading him, considering he's always a big favorite going into his matchups. However, he's slowly starting to win me over. He's done a great job in terms of nullifying the success of his opponents over his last couple of fights, and he showcased his striking style, which is very effective. Although he's usually on his back foot and usually the one skirting the side of the cage, he's done a very good job in terms of moving laterally, but also finding those opportunities to explode into some of his strikes, which usually catches opponents off guard. But he does a very good job in terms of staying disciplined. His feet are always under him. He's never very much extending over himself to try to land some strikes. And he utilizes his six foot three, 74 inch frame very well, especially with the striking style he tries to impose. He stays disciplined from distance. And although he's always moving backwards, like I said, or sideways, he does a good job of sticking that jab out there and following it up with the right hand behind it to keep his opponents respecting him and not recklessly just trying to close a pocket and trying to reach that long you know trying to close that long range that Gary is trying to maintain he has a sneaky trip game as well as well as very good takedown defense which allows him to keep fights in his range where he's able to let off on big shots and just continue to pepper away at you from distance We saw his fight with Gabe Green last time where he painted a beautiful picture on Gabe Green's face with his jab and that follow-up right hand over and over again. He bloodied up Gabe Green over 15 minutes, winning that fight by decision, and it seems like he is fine with going to a decision if that's what it takes. He doesn't chase or, or finishes or knockouts or submissions, he just lets them happen. If he so happens to hurt his opponent, he doesn't get overzealous and put himself into bad spots he just waits for that knockout to eventually happen rather than looking to take an opponent's head off he's very calm very disciplined and very mature for a fighter that only has 10 fights under his record i like what i see from gary he's definitely winning me over but i don't know if he'll ever be that guy that reaches the top of the division given uh some of the I don't know. I, I feel as though that there are going to be fighters that can exploit his his discipline style, whether it's somebody with a strong wrestling game, which obviously the welterweight division is very much uh, filled with riches of, of, of wrestlers. So it's going to be difficult for Gary to deal with those types of guys. But training over there at Kilclef FC, you got to believe they're going to have this guy more than ready to go up against anybody in the top of this division. But I'm glad that the UFC is taking their time and building him up slowly and giving him gradual steps up in competition so that he can hone his craft. Stepping in here to fight him is Song Kanan or Kanan Song who hasn't competed in over two years. 
I haven't been able to find an exact reason as to why he has been so inactive over the last two years, but he has been spending time over there at Team Alpha Male recently, which makes me wonder if he's trying to make one last ditch effort to to just keep his spot in the UFC. Obviously, he came up short against Max Griffin in his last matchup. But you can see the differences between the fighters that he's beat and the fighters that he's lost to in the UFC. The Alex Moronos and the Max Griffins of the world are beating Kanan Song. But he's going out there and beating guys like Derek Krantz and uh, uh, guys like Callan Potter, all of who are which no longer in the UFC. That's just a perfect indication of the type of guys that Kanan Song is going to be able to beat. He's a good striker with good power in his hands, but it seems as though he's going to struggle against guys that are much technically or much more technically better than him. And unfortunately for him, I think that's exactly what he's facing this weekend. Obviously, the prediction here is going to be Ian Gary, considering he's at that minus 600 range. But I think that this could be one of those fights where he potentially goes out there and gets a finish. I think that we'll see him jab his opponent's face off. I think that we'll see him follow up with that too whenever he's able to capitalize on on certain moments or some some countering aspects. But I think that long layoff for Kanan Song here is going to work against him. I think the speed advantage of Gary is going to be too much for him. And then I think we'll see Kanan really start to slow down as this fight goes on. And that's where Gary will be able to turn the burners on. And I think from there, he'll be able to pick up a second or third round stoppage victory. So, you know, go ahead, throw Gary into your parlays if you want. But I think if you want to look for that one single bet for this fight, uh, it's probably looking for Gary inside the distance. I think we'll see him play it safe in the early goings. But I think he'll realize that Kanan is slowly starting to break. And then from there, Gary should be able to push it from push the pace and eventually get that finish. Next up in the middleweight division, we got 9 and 3 Julian Marquez going up against 14 and 6 Marc Andre Barrio. Starting off on the Cuban Missile Crisis side, we got Julian Marquez looking to bounce back off of his loss after he fell to the hands of Gregory Rodriguez. Uh, literally got knocked the hell out in that matchup. Very, very bad performance from him there. He is also one of those fighters dealing with the fallout of the James Crowd situation as Glory MMA was his home for a while, but now he is training under the watchful eye of Mark Montoya up at Factory X. I think that's a good tra- good change in training camp for him, especially considering that Glory MMA and Factory X have had a long-standing relationship, especially considering that Mark Montoya was James Krause's coach when he was actually fighting. So I think that this transition to a different training camp for Julian Marquez will more than likely be a seamless transition for him. But we know what Marquez is good at. We know what he's good for. He's a big brooding middleweight that likes to put his big power on his opponents. And he has a mean choke game if you try to get in on a very desperate and ineffective takedown attempt. Just ask Mackie Patola. Julian Marquez likes to stalk his opponents and kind of just walks them down and utilizes his big power to gain that respect from them and then eventually knock them out or beat them into submission, which he's done in the past. I just don't think he has a very high ceiling as, you know, he he does throw his punches in decent technique and decent form with good mechanics, but I just don't know if he's a good all-around fighter that can deal with the top of this division when he has to face that. We've seen him get controlled and muzzled in clinch positions in the past, and we also seen that he can get outworked in terms of the striking realm if you showcase good technique and are able to put more power on him that will cause him to respect you and ultimately be too gun-shy to throw his own punches in return. On the flip side with Marc-Andre Barrio, he did come out on the losing end in his last fight against Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, but he was dealing with a rib injury that seemed to take place in the first round of that matchup. He's a very solid pressure fighter that likes to push the pace, stay in his opponent's face, and utilize that uh, cardio and weaponize it to break his opponent's late. He puts out good output and good volume, which usually keeps his opponents guessing, and that allows him to just be so free-flowing with his game. He has a good clinch game up against the cage, and he can land decent takedowns, but he seems to prefer just staying in his opponent's face with his punches, with his combinations, with his kicks, and he gets that respect from his opponents by just staying, keeping that forward pressure and constantly fainting and getting the, his opponents to bite on those feints so that he can counter with some good technique and good punching combinations of his own. I have been following Barrio for a long time and I used to watch him on the amateur scene up here in the you know in Montreal uh and I honestly didn't think he'd make it that far in his MMA career but 
he proved me wrong time and time again and he's seemed like a fighter that can now carve out a solid spot for himself on the UFC roster but it seems as though he's going to end up falling victim to the guys that are technically better than him in the striking realm or even in the grappling realm as guys like Chidi Njikawani and Anthony Hernandez have definitely shown. But he's going to be a a tough out for a lot of those guys in that top 20 to 30 range and I think he puts on a good performance more often than not and a very tough uh, style to deal with that a lot of opponents will end up breaking under. It's always scary going against a guy with as much finishing power as Julian Marquez has, but when that's really his only path to victory, it's a no-brainer to go with the other side. I get why Barrio is the favorite here, and I see that there has been money coming in on him, which has pushed him from a minus 120 to a minus 140, and I think that starts to get wider as this week goes on. Again, as I said during the the breakdowns for both these guys, if the durability issue of Barrio is not as great as I believe it is in my head, Barrio should be able to have complete success in this fight. From clinching Marquez up against the cage, similar to how Maki Patola was able to get a tremendous amount of success, to maybe dragging him to the ground, or even just utilizing that forward pressure, kind of telegraphing the shots that are going to be coming his way from Julian Marquez and evading them, and then just fainting forward pressure, punches and bunches that will eventually break uh, Julian Marquez Um, I don't know if Marquez will get finished here but I think that we'll see Barrio get close to certain spots where he'll be able to put put a bunch of punches together that could get close to a stoppage maybe Marquez rolls out of those bad spots and survives but there are going to be finishing opportunities late here for Barrio but I ultimately think he wins this fight via decision Next up in the women's flyweight division, we got 11-4 Viviani Araujo going up against 10-3 Amanda Hibas. Starting off on the Araujo side, she ended up falling short in her first ever UFC main event slot last time around against now title challenger Alexa Grasso. She's a very solid striker with good power in her hands and she does a very good job in terms of putting good output out there and even landing takedowns when she feels that she needs to separate herself from her opponent and also make it look good for the judges. She throws in good combinations, has nasty leg kicks as well, which usually cause her opponents to break or at least give her too much respect, which ultimately gives makes them a little gun-shy. She's getting up there in age, obviously, because she just turned 36 back in November, but I think she still has a good couple performances left in her just due to her style. Her forward movement, heavy leg kicks, and good punch combinations allow for her to establish her game and herself in fights, which cause opponents to usually fluster and eventually get too frustrated and make bad decisions that Arujo is able to take advantage of. I would love to see Arujo utilize her ground game a little bit more as she showed off some good takedowns and some good top control in recent performances. But she's very confident in her striking game and as she should be considering the amount of power that she's able to inflict when she lets her hands go. On the flip side for Amanda Hibos, I've been a guy that's been a you know non-believer of Hibos for a while. That's why I've been able to cash tickets on Marina Rodriguez and Catlin Chukagian over the last couple of fights. But I believe that Hibas, although she's talented, she's only effective in fights where she has a legitimate advantage over her opponent, which is obvious, right? That's just being very blunt and, and plain. But I mean it specifically when you see her defeating opponents like Verna Jandy Robo or Mackenzie Dern. She has high-level jiu-jitsu, which allows her to stay out of trouble against women like Dern and Jandy Robo, who are really effective on the mat. But also, those two fighters don't really have a very good striking game, and Hibas, she has an average striking game. I feel as though her striking style makes people believe that she's a very good striker, but I think a lot of it is empty strikes and a lot of empty substance. It looks nice. Like she looks like she's throwing with good technique and throwing with good and decent power. But as we've seen when she's fighting fighters that are better strikers than her, as we saw in the Marina Rodriguez fight and as we saw in the Catlin Chukagian fight, she gets flustered and she gets frustrated when opponents are able to continuously hit her over and over again. And I think that's what we're going to end up seeing possibly this weekend. Hibas is a solid fighter. She's a good she's a good ground tactician when she's able to get fights to the ground. She has a slick uh, submission game when she looks to utilize it. And her striking keeps her safe enough against certain levels of opponents. But I really don't think that she's going to cut it at the top of this division. Especially when you have the Chukagins of the world and the Shevchenkos and the Grassos of the world at the top of this division. She might find more success if she looks to go back down to 115 pounds, but that remains to be seen. 
Originally, Urujo opened up as the underdog in this matchup, but as the days have gone on, I see that the line is starting to close, and I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up being the favorite come fight time. And I believe she deserves to be so. I think her more effective stri striking style is going to allow her to distance herself from Hibas here, and Hibas will likely try to drag this fight to the ground and utilize her superior jujitsu. But I think the strength and the takedown defense of Arujo will hold up, and I think that we'll see desperation takedowns from Hibas that Arujo will be able to defend, keep this fight in the striking realm where she's going to have the advantage, and I think that we'll see Arujo just beat her to the punch over and over again, battering her en route. To a decision victory. Next up in the middleweight division, we got Derek Brunson coming in with a 23 and 8 record, going up against the 18 and 2 Drickus Duplessis. Starting off on the Derek Brunson side, he's looking to rebound from a knockout loss to Jared Cannonier last February and hoping to get back onto the winning track. He had a solid winning streak going into that Jared Cannonier fight and proclaimed that if he beats Jared Cannonier, he wanted a title shot against Israel Adesanya and then said once he beat Israel, he would look to retire. Not a good look for a guy that was going into a, you know, a number one contender fight essentially against Jared Cannonier. Although he had good early success and almost finished Cannonier, he ended up falling on his sword and losing to Jared Cannonier in that second round by showcasing that he just can't stand up to guys that are able to put those big that big punch power on him. Brunson is 39 years old and I really think he's at the end of his career so I was surprised that he decided to accept this matchup against a very hot prospect in Drake's Duplessis but he feels like he has something to prove to the masses and that's what exactly he's trying to do this weekend. On the flip side for Drickus Duplessis, 18-2 record, like I said, at 29 years old. This guy is in his prime, and he's looking to put South Africa on the map. He has big power in his hands as he's been able to knock out three of his four UFC opponents thus far, but also proved to a lot of people, or sorry, he didn't knock out three out of four. He knocked out two out of four and submitted the other one in Darren Till last time around. But in terms of the, his ability to win decisions, something that a lot of people questioned of his capabilities, he was able to pull off a decision victory against one of the best 15-minute fighters in the middleweight division through UFC history in Brad Tavares. That was a great performance where he kept that pressure on Brad Tavares, put those big punches on him, dropped him, or didn't record a knockdown in that matchup, but hurt him on numerous occasions in that fight and was able to get his hand raised via decision. Drickus is an athletic freak and has a lot of explosiveness and big power in his hands, which is why the majority of his wins have come via finish. He does lack in certain aspects of the technical side of the MMA game, but he makes up for it with his freakishly, you know, freakish strength, his freakish athleticism, and his freakish power, which is why opponents always have a hard time getting a beat on him. I think that he has a decent job of getting fights to the ground and doing damage from on top, but he does his best work when he's able to crash the pocket with his big power and put that power on his opponents, eventually knocking them out. I don't think it's a good idea for Derek Brunson to be coming back and taking this level of opponent on, especially a guy that can hit as hard as Duplessis. I believe that Brunson does have a uh, car or durability issue still, and although he ate some good shots during his uh, the winning streak that he had going into the Jared Cannonier fight, I think the Cannonier fight reminded us that, yes, Brunson, when he is hit hard by a hard puncher, he will likely go down, and that's what he's going to face here with Duplessis. The early wrestling of Brunson will likely keep this fight close in the early goings of the matchup but as this fight starts to go on as the takedowns start to get harder for Brunson to get and secure Duplessis will be able to land those big shots and I have no doubt that he'll be able to land that knockout blow here to get his hand raised so look for Duplessis money line or even Duplessis by knockout as I think he puts Derek Brunson to sleep here possibly even out cold Next up in the bantamweight division, which is in place of the prelim headliner here, we got Cody Garbrandt coming in with a 12-5 record, going up against Trevin Jones, who comes in with a 13-9 record. Starting off on the Cody Garbrandt side, his flyweight experiment did not go as planned as he got knocked out by Kai Carr France in their matchup. 
So Cody has decided to try to try his hand once again at 135 pounds, even though he has a one in five record over his last six fights. He's a very tough opponent for a lot of guys to deal with concerning his striking style and his combination striking and the power in which he throws. But we've seen over his last several fights that his durability is too much of a concern to have ultimate confidence in a guy, especially whenever he's the minus 150 to minus 200 favorite as he is this weekend. He's a still a very high level fighter in my opinion. It's just his lack of durability keeps biting him in the ass even in fights where he looks to be the more successful fighter. He's done a good job in terms of being a little bit more uh, disciplined with his striking compared to when he got knocked out by TJ Dillashaw and Pedro Munoz, but I believe that it's just the durability issues that have continued to rear its ugly head which has been the downfall of Cody Garbrandt's career over his last several fights. He's still capable to go out there and, you know, have good performances, but you always got to be biting your nails when you see him get hit with the shot and wonder if he can actually take those shots and continue to chug on forward. He's going to have to eat some big shots here against his opponent, Trevin Jones, who's on a three-fight losing streak of his own. He's hoping to right the ship here by taking this fight on short notice and trying to take advantage of the durability issues of Cody Garbrandt in hopes of saying his spot on the UFC roster. He's lost three straight fights, like I said, the first of which which was to Saeed Jokob Kokromanov, but you gotta cut him some slack considering the other fighters that he lost against, considering they were Javid Basharat and Hauni Barcelos. Trevin Jones was a big underdog in both of those matchups and ended up losing those fights. But look at the strength of schedule that he's been facing since coming to the UFC. Tamor Valiev, Mario Bautista, and then those three names that I previously mentioned. He has not gotten an easy matchup, no matter who they put him up against. Even in the Mario Batista fight, even though he won that by knockout in the second round, he was the one close to getting finished in the first round. He seems to do his best work when he's able to get opponents to the ground, but his big power has managed to, has allowed him to stay in fights more often than not. The Timur Valio fight was one that he actually got his hand raised in, but unfortunately tested positive for marijuana, so the fight was overturned to a no contest afterwards. But... As of right now, technically speaking, he only has one win in the UFC. He's hoping to make it two this weekend, and he's going to have to showcase his big power if he hopes to get his hand raised. I never want to put my heart through that stress of having uh, any type of investment on the Cody Garbrandt side as a favorite, but technically speaking, he is so much better than Trevin Jones that as long as he doesn't get clipped by a big shot by Jones, he should be able to win this fight. I think he could possibly even find the knockout considering how much of a technical striking advantage he has in this matchup. But Jones has pulled himself out of the fire a couple of times, most notably against Timur Valiev and even in his next fight against Mario Bautista. He was getting starched in both of those fights but managed to pull off the knockout in the second round. He could do that here against Cody Garbrandt, and that's my big holdup. But as we've seen over his last couple of fights, um, you know, uh, especially against Hani Barcelos, if you have a technical striking advantage over him, you're going to be, be able to beat him to the punch and keep that sustained damage over 15 minutes. And I think that's what Cody Garbrandt is capable of here. But I'm just so hung up on the potential that he will get knocked the hell out. I just, I can't get that image out of my head of him just re not reacting well to shots and eventually going out clean. That's my big holdup here. But Jones is not as live of an underdog for me to take a shot on him, which is why my prediction is still going to end up being on the Cody Garbrandt side. And I think he gets his hand raised either by second round KO or by decision. Shifting on over to the main card, we got the middleweights kicking things off here as we have the highly anticipated UFC debut of 3-0 Bo Nickel. He takes on 13-8 Jamie Pickett. Starting off on the Bo Nickel side of things, like I said, he's only 3-0 with two wins of his coming on the contender series where he was able to dispose of his opponents in less than a minute. He submitted both of those guys and made it look easy and showcased that he could be a very tough out for a lot of people at the UFC level once he makes it there. He's only 27 years old and he has a very decorated wrestling background from the college scene, which is why a lot of people are very excited for what he can do in the UFC octagon. He's been working on his jiu-jitsu just as much as his wrestling and you can see it whenever he's been able to submit his last couple of opponents. 
He's even taken on tough tests like Craig Jones on the grappling scene. And although he came up short in that matchup, we see that he has a lot to offer against guys, especially once he makes it to this UFC level. His wrestling is going to be very hard to deal with for a lot of opponents, and I think that will get him to that top 10 of this division. But that's where we're going to have to see if the rest of his MMA game is as good as his grappling game. That's where I still have my question marks about him. What is his striking like? Yes, he knocked out his first opponent, but what is his striking like against higher levels of opponent, legitimate opponents? And secondly, what is his cardio like? Can he keep up a good pace over 15 minutes if he needs to? What if his opponents don't go away easily? Will Bo Knuckle gas out and be a complete fraud? Or will he be able to keep up that pace and eventually find finishes late in matchups as well? Those are the two question marks that still remain for Bo Nickel, and I don't know if we're going to get those answers anytime soon, but he has a decent enough opponent in his this weekend in Jamie Pickett to showcase more of his skills. Jamie Pickett, like I said, 13-8 and eight record, 34 years old. He's on a two-fight losing skid, and this fight will likely be his pink slip fight, especially if he can't get his hand raised. He's a fighter that has largely gotten away with the physicality that he brings to the table. A six foot two fighter with an 80 inch reach, but a very fast and and strong fighter, which is why he's been able to have success in the clinch realm whenever he pins opponents up against the cage. He's been able to beat the Loriana Storopolis and the Joseph Holmes of the world, but losing to guys like Jordan Wright, Dennis Tullulian, you kind of see what his ceiling is. If you are technically better than him in any aspect of MMA, more than likely you'll be able to defeat him. So what more is there really to say about him going into this matchup against a hot prospect like Bo Nickel? There's really no reason to make this breakdown long-winded. Uh, Bo Nickel will win this fight any way he wants. He will get the takedown. He'll be able to wrap up a submission. I think he does it within the first round. There's no way Jamie Pickett wins this fight unless he like times a perfect knee when Bo Nickel goes for a takedown. I just don't see that happening. I think we see Bo Nickel have fun with him and then eventually finish him in the latter half of that first round. Look for the props here. Look for the early finishing props for Nickel rather than that minus 1400. Next up in the lightweight division, we have 21 and 2 Matoush Gamra going up against 13 and 5 Jalen Turner. Now, starting off on the Gamrod side, he came up short in his last matchup in a pretty much a number one contender fight against Benio Dariush, as Dariush showcased that he was the better scrambler, the better wrestler, and ultimately the better grappler in that matchup. Gamrod, that's where he likes to take fights. He wants to drag opponents to the ground, utilize his top pressure, look for a submission or look for a TKO, or be completely content with grinding you out over 15 minutes. He only has two losses on his record, one of which was the aforementioned Benio Dariush loss, but also that close split decision loss to Guram Kutataladze in his UFC debut, a fight that a lot of people believed that he deserved to win. He has a decent striking aim, but it's obvious that he wants to drag fights to the ground where he has his most success. He's very good in the scrambling situations, as we saw in his fight against another high-level opponent in Armand Sarukian. I believe that fight showcased that Gamrat will always be at the top of this division, but likely won't be able to make it against guys like Benio Dariush or Islam Mahachev at the top three or top four of this division. But he'll be a damn good uh, uh, test for anybody looking to get into that top five of the division, just as he has with opponent this weekend, Jalen Turner. Turner has really turned around his UFC career after starting his run with, with, with the promotion at one and two. But he's rattled off five straight victories and he's been able to finish pretty much every single one of those opponents. He's very dangerous from that distance as especially he continues to improve his striking game and distance management, but he's also very nasty when he can get on the neck of his opponents, utilizing those long, long tarantula-like limbs to get those chokes and get those technical submission victories the way that he has. However, my question mark with him is his takedown defense. Sure, he might be comfortable off of his back and he seems very dangerous right now considering the amount of finishes that he's been able to garner over his last couple fights. But another guy kind of similar that had that hype on him and that had that intimidation factor of him just ended up losing this past week. Andre Munez, a guy that people were continuously backing and he was coming through for them. But once he finally took that step up, you know, he, you know, I don't want to say that Jacare Souza at 40 years old was a step up in competition, nor was Uriah Hall, but a legit step up in Brendan Allen, who is a very solid all around fighter. We saw Munez break under that style. He wasn't able to implement his grappling game because he didn't have that advantage there. 
Will Turner have a jiu-jitsu advantage over Gamrot? I don't think so. So I wonder, will Jalen Turner have made enough improvements th through this portion of his career to fight a high-level opponent like Matos Gamrot? Turner, very entertaining, very dangerous, and still a bright prospect, even if he ends up losing this weekend. But this is going to be his first true test and a very steep step up in competition considering the opponents that he's been beating over his last five fights. This should be a very fun fight, especially when we get those scrambling situations going and when Turner looks to slap on some of his nasty chokes that he's been able to get his hand raised with over his last couple of fights. But I think the expertise, the, the experience and the scrambling ability of Gamrat will keep him safe against the dangerous finishing uh, prowess of Jalen Turner. And I think that we'll see Gamrat start to take over the longer that this fight goes. I have no doubt that he'll be able to secure takedowns in this fight and he might be at a bit of a striking disadvantage not technically speaking, but, you know, dangerous, danger-wise, I think that uh, Turner is more dangerous on the feet, but I think Gamrot will showcase that he can get close that distance, drag the fight to the ground, and that's where we've seen Jalen Turner have issues in the past. When he can't throw up submissions and secure them, he does struggle with having much success off of his back. Unless he's improved tremendously since the last time we've seen him ground out, grinded out by opponents, I think that Gamrat's going to be able to stay safe in that top position and grind this victory out over 15 minutes, getting his hand raised by decision. Moving over to the welterweight division, we got 15-4 and four, Jeff Neal going up against Shavkat Rachmanov, who comes in with a 16-0 record. Starting off on the Jeff Neal side of things, I feel as though I've been higher on Neal more than most people have been, especially over his last couple of fights. He's been able to cash a couple underdog tickets from me against guys like Vicente Luque and Santiago Ponzinibbio as a lot of people started to write him off after he lost his fight to St uh, Stephen Thompson and Neil Magny. Those were just bad stylistic matchups for him, but when he goes out there against another striker, he can still showcase that he has good technical boxing, good technical striking, and still has big power that he could put you away with. Wonderboy, too much of a, a finesse striker for Jeff Neal to get a beat on him. And Neil Magny, too much of a pressure fighter that mixes things up in the clinch and takedowns and volume from the outside for Neal to get a beat on. But Ponznibio and guys like Vicente Luque were willing to exchange in the pocket with him, and that's not at all what you want to do with a guy like Jeff Neal. I still think he has a couple good wins left in him, and he's still a very high-level welterweight fighter, and that's mainly due to his ability to utilize his striking utilize his combination striking and then ultimately knock you out when he's able to do so obviously the big question mark is what is his takedown defense like and what is his ability to deal with guys that are relentlessly looking to take him to the mat the best example of a guy that he's faced in the past that looks to do that is Bilal Muhammad but I believe that was when Bilal Muhammad was still in the development stage of his career, but he went 0 of 7 on takedowns that night, and Neil ended up battering him over 15 minutes to win that fight via decision. I think Neil is still a solid fighter, and you can look for very good striking combinations for him, but he's always going to be live to pull off the victory as he showcased over his last couple of fights. On the Shavkat Rachmanov side, there are so many fighters that do not want to call this guy out, and there have been a couple, but he seems to be the boogeyman of the welterweight division. And how can you not be? With a 16-0 record, with all of those wins coming via finish. He goes out there, and he puts the pressure on his opponents, he drags them to the mat, and he utilizes his jiu-jitsu, as well as his dominating top pressure to beat his opponents into submission or via TKO. He's very dangerous on the ground, and his size and length and strength make him very difficult to deal with, especially when you tie up with him in the, in the clinch realm, because he does a very good job in looking for trips, throws, and he has very good takedowns as well. His striking is developing, uh, developing, and he doesn't really have the most technique when he's throwing, but it doesn't matter because he just looks to close the distance and try to drag you to the mat. If he can continue developing at the rate that he is, continues to rack up the wins the way that he is, I would not at all be surprised seeing him fight for a title within the next year to year and a half. As much as I want to give Jeff Neal a shot here, especially considering the big underdog price that he has and how much he's come through for me over the last two fights, I just feel he will succumb to that pressure grappling style of Shavkat and eventually give up a submission of some sort. But... Rather than getting latched onto a side here in terms of money line, obviously there's not much reason to latch onto minus 500, minus 600 Rachmanov. I think he wins, but the fight doesn't go to decision. 
I'm expecting that to be chalky as well, even maybe even the alternate total of under two and a half. But I think that's the way to go. Violence. You know, I think that Rachmanov has a little bit of issues in terms of his striking style and his technique, which will allow Jeff Neal to land some big shots in the striking room, especially if he can keep this fight upright. But once this fight hits the mat, I think Jeff Neal will struggle with that top pressure of Rachmanov, and he will struggle even more to get away from the finishing capabilities of Rachmanov when fights hit the ground. So fight doesn't go to decision is going to be my favorite spot for this matchup, no matter how chalky it is. But I, I'm still going to end up going with the Shavkat Rockman outside to win this fight via submission. Time for our first of two title fights of the evening. This one takes place in the women's flyweight division as we have the flyweight queen Valentina Shevchenko with a 23-3 record looking to defend her title once again against 15-3 Alexa Grasso. Starting off on the Shevchenko side, she came uh, close to losing her title last time around and looked as human as she has ever looked except when fighting somebody named Amanda Nunes. Tyler Santos used a very effective grapple-heavy approach in the first three rounds of their matchup where she was able to garner a lot of control time and dish out decent damage from that top position. Fortunately for Tyler, only two judges... Oh, sorry, two judges actually scored one of those first three rounds for Shevchenko and then ultimately the last two for Shevchenko as well, allowing Shevchenko to escape with the title once again. That is the most human we've ever seen Shevchenko look. And even though Jennifer Maya had a little bit of success in one round against Shevchenko, she still goes out there and batters uh, Jennifer Maya en route to winning her title as, or, or defending her title once again. We know what Shevchenko is best at. She utilizes her striking very well. She's very disciplined in the striking room. And she's very fast and explosive with her shots, which cause her opponents to get frustrated and ultimately end up breaking. She's very fast with her kicks, very fast with her 1-2 down the middle. And over her last couple of fights, she's shown, shown a very good ground game as well, especially when she's in that top position. She's very strong from that top position, and she's been able to get a couple of opponents into that crucifix position where she's, able to been, where she's been able to pound them into a ground and pound finish. That is definitely her calling card, especially when she has that clear advantage in the grappling realm over her opponents. But she'll always be a very good striker, and she's just very keen on always pretty much answering any time her opponents hit her. Like, she always wants to be the one with the last laugh, and she's just so good at countering her opponents there's this one video of her where she's uh teaching some sort of seminar and one of the things that they're working on is ensuring that you kick as soon as you get hit with a kick and she's just so quick and so fast with retaliating and countering with a kick of her own and you can see why she's so effective with it inside the cage her opponent this weekend, Alexa Grasso, was a highly touted prospect coming into the UFC, and she originally ran into a bit of a roller coaster run over her first couple fights. But she's put together a very solid four fight winning streak, which has earned her a title shot in hopes of dethroning flyweight champion Valentina Shevchenko. We know what Alexa Grasso is good at. She's a very good striker. She manages her range well. She throws in combinations. And although she doesn't strike with the biggest of power, she lands with enough damage that it causes her opponents to give her that respect. Her grappling game is definitely the weakest part of her game, but she's working on it. And she's showcased over the last couple of fights that even when taken down, she's doing a very good job of working back to her feet and nullifying the amount of control time that her opponents are able to get on top of her. Obviously, Carla Esparza was able to defeat her with takedowns and control time, but we see in the fights that she's been taken down, and she's working right back to her feet. In her 10 UFC fights, she's been taken down at least once in all but four of them. And in, four of the, in those four fights, three of her opponents didn't even attempt a single takedown. I think that she's going to be facing some takedowns this weekend. But... She has a very good striking style. She stays composed. She stays balanced. And if she can stay on her feet, she's always live to end up getting her hand raised. I think there might be some people looking to take advantage of the big plus money side on Alexa Grasso here. But I think that Shevchenko is a good enough striker to remain competitive. Well, 
to have her moments in the striking realm here. But I'd be surprised if we don't see Shevchenko look to get this fight to the ground where Alexa Grasso has largely struggled throughout her career. Now, I think that Grasso will do a good job in terms of working back to her feet and making it harder for Shevchenko to secure that dominant position as she has done so many times against prior opponents. But I think that over time, Shevchenko will continue to get those top, that top position and wear on Grasso here. Maybe getting that TKO finish from on top, but I think ultimately with the improvements that Grasso has been making, we'll likely see this fight go to the 25-minute decision and we'll see Shevchenko retain her title once again by decision. The return of the GOAT is imminent, folks. The main event is finally here, and it is for the vacant heavyweight title, and it goes down between John Jones with a 26-1 record going up against 11-1 Cyril Gan. Finally, we get to see John Jones finally step back into the cage after a three-year-long layoff. He originally vacated the light heavyweight title after defeating Dominic Reyes in February of 2020. That was a very close fight that could have gone either way. And a lot of people were kind of hinting that John Jones was starting to slow down and lose his, his touch. But he hopes to reverse that this weekend by taking the step up to heavyweight and fighting a very legitimate opponent in Cyril Gan. I have been a fan of John Jones for a very long time. My transition from being a casual to a diehard came during the rise of John Jones, even before he won the title. I was in attendance in Newark, New Jersey, when he won his title against Shogun Hua. It was either Newark or East Rutherford. Regardless, it was in New Jersey. UFC 129, I believe it was. Or sorry, uh, 128. Uh and uh, yeah, he dismantled Shogun Hua and won the title that night with relative ease. He is he was a very dominant champion, turning away pretty much every opponent that was coming at him. And even when he faced a little bit of adversity, he dug deep into that championship attitude that he had, that championship mentality, and he was able to pull a, pull the win out of the fire. His fight against Alexander Gustafsson is still one of the greatest fights I've ever witnessed in person and showcases his championship mindset. Even when down, he can come back and win fights, but it's not often that he's down in fights. He has a very good wrestling game, especially when he's able to get on top of his opponents and utilize that brutal, brutal ground and pound, as well as that slick submission game that he has with his chokes. He has a, you know, he, he lacks a little bit of technique in terms of his striking style, but he's just so flashy and, un and unorthodox on the feet that he gets away with it. His speed mixed with his uh, awkward movement and long range allows him to pick opponents apart from distance and then get his grappling game going if he feels he needs to take it into that realm. I remember in the lead-up to his Alexander Gustafsson fight, he actually came and hit pads uh, very late night at one of the gyms that I used to work at over here, and the only thing that he did with his coach, Six-Gun Gibson, that night was do unorthodox striking style, or unorthodox striking techniques for an hour. He would hit the pad the same way with the you know a spinning back kick or a, a fly, you know a flying elbow or something like that something just weird and ridiculous. But they would just train it over and over and over again, and that's all he did. That is literally all he did for an hour. That just shows you what kind of freak athlete that this guy is. And now at 35 years old, I think that this was the perfect time for him to move up to this weight class and just secure his status as possibly the greatest fighter of all time. But he will have to go through Cyril Gan, who is a unicorn in his own right in this heavyweight division. This is a, a fighter that the heavyweight division has never really seen before. A guy that moves like a middleweight and, you know, is very disciplined with his striking approach, throwing in combinations, utilizing his footwork and his distance management very well to just touch up his opponents. He has a very good cardio game as well, which allows him to beat up opponents over 15 to 25 minutes, especially when he is the one being able to dictate the pace. In his fight against Francis Ngannou, we saw Francis utilize the wrestling, which seemed to be the kryptonite to Cyril Gan's game, and I think that could ultimately be his downfall in this matchup if he has not shored up that aspect of his game. But when he's on the feet and able to just chip away at his opponents from distance with his footwork and movement, he's very hard to deal with. And I, I think that's why he'll always be a top two to top three heavyweight in this division. He, we just never seen anything like it. Yet, from what we came to know before his fight with Francis Ngannou was that he was slick with his top game when he did find him um, himself on top with uh, with his jujitsu. 
But when he's on his back, different story. And I'm curious to see what kind of improvements that he's been making in the in the lead up and preparation to this specific matchup. I'm a big fan of both of these guys, but I really think that John Jones will showcase, as he said in the past, that there are levels to the shit. And I think that John Jones, as long as packing on the muscle and weight that he has over the last couple months or year or years, if we want to say, however long he's been taken to make this transition, as long as it's not too much of a detriment to his movement or his cardio, I think he wins this fight relatively easily. I think he can drag this fight to the ground when he needs to. And I think that's why he brought in those big bodies that he's been working with. You know, people want to laugh at the fact that he has his main training partners right now are Maurice Green, Jorgen DeCastro, and Walt Harris. But I think just having live, big, warm bodies is enough for him to just get the reps that he needs against guys that are bigger than him so that when he gets that live action against a guy like Cyril Gunn, it won't be as hard for him to get those positions that he needs to win this fight. In the striking realm, sure, Gunn might be the slicker and more technical striker, but I think Gunn is really going to struggle when Jones looks to get this fight to the ground, and once Jones gets the fight to the ground, I think Gunn is going to struggle even more dealing with a guy who has the ground and pound, and that just crushing top pressure that John Jones has shown time and time again. He always does such a good job of just methodically passing from one position to the next and once he gets that top position and is able to posture up he's just so difficult to deal with when he starts raining down those elbows opening up submission opportunities for himself it's gonna look like nothing i am surprised well i am not surprised that we're only getting like a minus 155 minus 165 line on him because i don't first of all i think that there's a lot of fans that jumped on after covid and they haven't seen john jones fight nor do they know how good he actually is and then all they've been seeing is cyril Gan going out there and having tremendous performances outside of that francis and Ganu fight there is truly levels to this and again as long as the weight addition for john jones is not too detrimental to him here he will run through cyril Gan. i have no doubt about it and new no matter who wins, it's going to be NU. But NU heavyweight champion. It's a new era in the heavyweight division. John Jones will be reigning for a very long time, especially with the fact that you can get away with being in your early 40s. He's only 35, but he can reign this division for several years if he chooses to fight that long. John Jones, your new heavyweight champion. Let's go. There you guys go. All the breakdowns for the UFC 285 card. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. As always, hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. I'll have PFL Challenger Series breakdowns and Cage Warrior breakdowns on the Patreon throughout the week. Check out uh, the Patreon for that link in the description below. Obviously, Thursday, dropping the uh, the Lucky Trinity uh, parlay for you guys. And then on Friday, dropping my three best prop bets for you guys. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Hope you guys enjoy the nice and early drop for this. Hoping to stick with this. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. Drop that like and subscribe if you haven't already. And drop a comment below as well if you guys are enjoying the early content. Not to mention the consistent content as well. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Good luck this weekend. And I'll see you guys at the end of the week. Peace.